Today we did something a little different on Real Talk. My colleague from PragerU Kids, Jill Simonian, interviewed me. I welcome you to listen in as we discuss my educational philosophy. After 20 years of studying America's school system, I talk about what is at the root of its problems. We need an educational revolution. I'm very excited for this conversation today. I have learned a lot from you. Everyone knows you as the CEO of PragerU. We all know that you have children, three young children. But I think one of the things that we sometimes casually forget around here is that you actually started as an educator. And I've sat in your office and gotten all sorts of knowledge from you about the state of the education system and what schools are doing now. And I'm really excited to share this with everyone because you were in the trenches and you've been there, done that, and you've seen the change. And I'm curious if you can maybe describe a little bit about your education to become an educator and how you've seen the system change. First of all, thanks for this opportunity. I love <laughs> speaking about education, specifically America's education. It's where my passion is. It's why I do Prayer You. Um, you're right. I did start as an educator. My whole journey, my whole career started as a teacher. I became a headmistress of a school. I taught every grade, kinder through seventh. Uh, but really my journey into the flawed uh, education system that we're seeing in America has begun when I was getting my master's in education. And that was when I really noticed that there is an ideology that was really embedded into America's education system that simply just didn't make sense to me. It didn't seem to uphold the values of Americanism. It didn't seem to uphold the values of um, the things that I learned at home when it came to learning and teaching. And I think the biggest part for me going through educa the education system and getting my master's in education was that I wanted to know what are the basics that a child should learn in order to be successful. And every time I searched for it, I didn't really get clear answers. And I don't know that other teachers who are listening into this conversation feel any differently. Do you leave getting a master's in education or a credential, feeling like you really know what a child should learn every single year? Do you really know what would mean that you've done a good job for your classroom or, or for your students? I think much of it is it was kind of this open-ended fluff to me. And, you know, theories like John Dewey's theory and this child-based uh, education where the child is the driver of, of what's being taught in schools kind of frustrated me even when I was still in my 20s. Wow. And I heard you tell a story that I want you to repeat here. In your 20s, when you were getting your education, you got into a an argument, allegedly, with one of your professors about John Dewey? Well, so Describe who John very, Dewey is okay, first. For okay. anyone who so doesn't know, it's very who typical of me to get into trouble <laughs> because I had never seen myself as a sheep-like person, right? Mm -hmm. And so when somebody came to me with a fit, a complete kind of statement, I would always challenge that because I think that by challenging ideas, you either agree with the idea ultimately and then you feel stronger about them or you actually develop a, a second thought or a different thought and you feel strong about those ideas. And so I wanted to really, you know, I was one of those students who didn't want to just get that paper degree. I wanted to really understand what I believe in and what I should then bring into the classroom. And ultimately, when I was a, a head of a school, I wanted to really know what I what I stood for. Um, and so I, I remember having an argument what, with my philosophy professor in ed school. And w the argument was about John Dewey's philosophy of education, which is a child-centered education. And this idea that, you know, the child is curious and ultimately 
if we rely on the child's nature to lead us teachers in the direction that would you know, bring them curiosity, ultimately they'll learn whatever it is that they need to learn and they won't resent learning because it will be more fun for them. Mm-hmm. It will be project-based, it will be exciting. And you know, through this curiosity, they will end up learning more and remembering more. And that was really the philosophy, this progressive philosophy that was, I, I wanna use the word sold on us, but I mean, it's sold on us is an understatement. Right. It was, this is how it needs to be done. And then there's this other guy who had a completely different perspective. His name is E.D. Hirsch. And E.D. Hirsch is basically this old school education philosopher who got it totally wrong and we should learn about him so we know what not to do. That was basically how it was laid out in wow. my class. Um, and I would venture to guess that most folks that are going through ed school have experienced a similar sentiment because the actual textbooks basically outline it like that. And so, you know, you would imagine I'm reading this the philosophy of John Dewey, and then I'm reading the philosophy of Edie Hirsch. And it wasn't just because it was controversial that I wanted to learn more about Edie Hirsch, uh, though maybe in my 20s. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But no, it, it actually resonated with me what Edie Hirsch said. Edie Hirsch said that, you know, every single grade, there is a certain knowledge base that a child should learn. And I actually remember ordering uh, these books where every kindergartner should learn this, every first grader should Mm -hmm. learn this. And I found that to be incredibly helpful. And so I started diving down this philosophy that Edie Hirsch uh, was basically teaching. And I went back to my professor and I was pretty strong about it. I said, I I actually don't understand. You expect the six-year-old or the seven-year-old to decide what ought to be taught in class? How do they even have the knowledge to even come up with what needs to be taught in class? It just... It just didn't make sense to me. And it actually didn't make sense to me as a human being myself. Mm-hmm. I, you, know, you know, my background, I was born in the United States, but then I was raised in Israel. And mm-hmm. so I got the knowledge base from Israeli schools. And then when I came back to the United States around 20 years old, there was a piece of knowledge that I felt was missing because I didn't go to school here. I didn't go to grade school here. And so I wanted to know what that was. And I kept calling it the ladder. Uh What is the ladder? I want to climb up that ladder. I want to know what needs to be known if you live in the United States. I wanted to have that cultural literacy. That is is basically what E.D. Hirsch calls it, cultural literacy. I wanted to know it because I felt that even though I was an American, I felt that there must be some body of knowledge that is missing for me in order to be a productive citizen, in order to be a successful human being in this this society. Mm -hmm. And I was searching for it. And when I was in education school, I thought, well, maybe I would find it there. You would think that an educator would have access to what is supposed to be this cultural literacy thing, what I kept calling the ladder. How does an immigrant know how to climb up the literacy ladder in the United States if the ladder is hidden? Mm-hmm. I kept asking that question. Where is the ladder? And then when I landed on E.D. Hirsch's books, that to me was the ladder. But they were telling you that that was wrong. They were telling me that it was wrong, that it's old school way of teaching. You know, we let go of it since the 1950s. And, you know, really a child is not going to enjoy learning this way because they're going to be disinterested in it given that they didn't come up with it. Uh, and, and you know, I, I disagreed with that. As a mom, that does seem very dysfunctional to me to let, like you say, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old lead what they're going to learn because they don't they, they don't have any knowledge. And what we're seeing in schools now, and I imagine that you've seen this as well, what I've experienced at our former school, our former public school, there was this concept of 
the whole child. They kept they kept referring to children as we take the whole child approach. We take the child centered approach, and they have really neglected to teach the basic skills of, you know, like memorizing classic poems, memorizing math facts. I mean, tell me, tell me what has happened that you've seen. Yeah, I, I think what would be helpful to really understand is, is parents might find this very surprising, but there isn't a specific curriculum that is given to a school. And so the state does not actually write a specific curriculum. It's a very brush strokes. And the school generally may not even have a specific curriculum. And so that is very brush strokes. And so you hire these 20-something-year-olds, and obviously, you know, there are teachers that are older. Ultimately, you hire teachers and you give them this very open-ended, not knowledge-based curriculum. It's it's supposedly skills-based. And so, you know, they're supposed to think critically and all of these d- different fancy words. And essentially, if you think about taking a classroom uh, from kindergarten through eighth grade, but not having an actual knowledge-based ladder, as I call it, every year a new teacher comes in and they have to basically almost guess what the different individuals in their classroom had learned last year. And so you can't build upon a knowledge. You're supposed to build upon a skill. But the skills can't be really learned without having a knowledge. And so I'll give you an example. Let's say you're teaching music. And this is, a, this is an example that E.D. Hirsch talks about in, in this book, which I highly recommend. I know it has changed the lives of many people that have come to work here because I handed it to, mm-hmm. I hand it to every educator that, um, that works with us. And so the, the example that E.D. Hirsch talks about is, let's say you're talking about music, and you believe that a child has the ability to create incredible music. They would be an amazing musician, okay? How can they even write the, this creative music without first learning the basics. You know, how do you read the music? What do we consider good music to be? If they don't listen to other types of music, how are they going to compose brilliant new music? And so essentially we're doing the same thing with our education system. If we don't believe that there are any basic knowledge, skills that kids need to go through from year to year, how will they excel at anything? How do you think critically about something that you have no basic knowledge in, Mm -hmm. right? And so there's been such a focus on these fluffy words. I just call them fluffy, fluffy fluff words because (laughs) they sound really good, you know, like social emotional learning and critical thinking. And I'm not saying that critical thinking is not important, but if you have no knowledge and nothing to compare it to, what are you even going to think critically Mm -hmm. about, right? And so you have to have some basic instinct that is developed on, based on two things. How do you develop an instinct? You have the knowledge and then you have the experience. You have knowledge and experience combined that gives you instinct. Instinct is part of what leads to better critical thinking. Mm-hmm. But we're not giving them, again, this ladder and that is part of the problem. So you have teachers who basically receive this brushstrokes curriculum and based on that, they're supposed to create an opportunity for the child to think critically. But it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're seeing that it doesn't work. They've been moving in this progressive education, moving away from having specific standards, specific knowledge-based cultural literacy. Uh, they've been moving in this direction for many, many years. And even though America is investing more and more dollars into the education system, our actual system is going downhill. And so the child-centered education is kind of the John Dewey progressive approach where you would kind of really go with what the child is curious about and is interested in. And that, while, while the, the teacher is a chaperone, is not necessarily 
preaching the class and right it's like they don't they don't want the teachers to be preachers then there's the knowledge based education where you have a specific body of knowledge that is delineated based on a specific amount of time where a child needs to learn whatever it is that is decided upon before even entering into the classroom mm-hmm. right and so the teacher's job is to actually be a sage on the stage right it's like they right. don't want the sage on the stage but the knowledge based educator is a sage on the stage and so The knowledge-based education is um, really interesting. Um, and there, there are many areas actually where knowledge-based education has proven to be very effective. I'll give you a personal example mm-hmm. with my own children. Oftentimes when I would send them to school before I put them in a knowledge-based curriculum, uh, and knowledge-based curriculum, interestingly enough, is the way Jews actually teach Judaism. Oh, Orthodox wow. Judaism uses a knowledge-based curriculum to teach Judaism. basically the Torah, the Bible, and the Talmud, and all of the things that we're supposed to teach. And I don't know if they actually use this phraseology, but when I'm watching how the curriculum is delineated and written up for the Jewish schools, or specifically Orthodox schools, let me just add that, okay. I actually say to myself, well, that is actually a knowledge-based curriculum. They're supposed to learn these verses and this kind of information. Mm-hmm. And then once they learn the knowledge, they're then... applying the critical thinking based on the knowledge that is being taught there. And so personal example, I would send them to not knowledge-based schools and I would pick the kids up. What did you learn today? Nothing. <laughs> right. You know, nothing? You didn't learn anything today? I mean, nothing. I, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of parents listening to this conversation yes. who can totally relate to this. Like, really? You were there for eight hours and mm-hmm. I spent $20,000 or $30,000 yeah. on the school <laughs> and you learned nothing? How is that even possible, right? And then I start sending them to a more knowledge-based curriculum school. And I noticed that with the Jewish studies, what did you learn today? And they would specifically tell me what they learned today. Today, we learned that Moses, you know, he had, wow. you know, went against the Pharaoh and said, let my people go, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, right? There was a specific story. And by the way, their other friends learned the same thing, even though they were in the other classroom. And they were also, and then my son said to my daughter, oh, I remember learning this last year, last year. right? And so they picked up on that, on that knowledge. Can you think critically about that knowledge? Of course, right? But my point is, you can still achieve all of the critical thinking and all of these things that supposedly the child-centered class, classroom is supposed to achieve. You can actually achieve it better in a knowledge-based education because you then get both the knowledge and the opportunity to think about it critically, where with the child-centered classroom, you don't have either one of those opportunities. Right. And so I think it's really fascinating to look at, you know, Orthodox uh, Jewish curriculum and how it is, it's very intentional, in what is being taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, it's a, there is a ladder. You know what you're going to learn every single year and you build upon it. And it is almost no wonder that the Jews have been able to preserve this body of knowledge because of this knowledge-based education, right? There is a very clear understanding of what you're supposed to learn. You know the stories, you know the rules, you know the laws, you know the characters, and you know that you're going to learn it every single year and you know you're going to build upon it. And so I think 
it's just, it's a brilliant way to educate and there's so much to learn from it. And given that it's been done for, for so many years, it's, it's, it's worth paying attention to. And I know that there are many Christian schools who do a similar thing. I mean, you send your kids to, mm-hmm. to a school and oftentimes you ask them, what yeah. did you learn? Nothing. You send them to Sunday <laughs> school. What did you learn? They, st- they tell you All everything, the stories, right? Yep. They, they know the stories and then they meet another person from another state and they know that story too. And that creates fibers and connections and, and fellowship and, you know, a big part of this cultural literacy that mm-hmm. we need to have across the board, not just in Bible studies. We need to have it for, for other disciplines as well. Mm-hmm. We've recently seen an abandonment of the classics. Kids are not being taught Shakespeare anymore because Shakespeare is an old white guy who's seen as irrelevant from the woke left. Uh, They're not being taught about the Greek philosophers. They're not being taught about uh, Greek mythology, all of these stories. A lot of the new teachers now say, well, those are irrelevant. They're old-fashioned. But we've seen the decline in the I want to say the quality of knowledge that students are learning. Why are those classics still important? Well, I mean, I think the classics are important because if you don't understand how Western civilization has been built, then you don't understand America today. Mm. How are you going to appreciate civics and the the system that America is built upon if you don't understand uh, the history of the kings and queens in Europe and monarchy and and why, you know, why we came here to begin with, right? And why we built the system as we have built. And there there is a reason why teaching uh, and learning about Western civilization helps better understand why what has happened today works, right? Mm -hmm. And so we are basically a a nation with amnesia. We don't understand where we came from. And so it's no wonder why we don't know what what gold we have in Mm -hmm. our hands right now with this country. And certainly we don't understand where we're headed because everything is mush. Uh, But the other thing is there's a Trojan horse in in our system, and that is social-emotional learning or these terms language arts. Uh, Language arts used to be reading, writing, and literacy. And within literacy, there were specific bodies of art that children were supposed to learn and oftentimes even memorize, Mm -hmm. right? It wasn't because it was just fun and they enjoyed it and whatever. It was part of the system. Those were the notes that the musicians needed to learn in order to later on create this beautiful body of art, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with social-emotional learning. It is so vague. What is it really? What is it really? It's a Trojan horse. And so... 10 years ago, social-emotional learning was something. 10 years later, today, it's woke ideology. It's mm-hmm. critical race theory. It's, you know, uh, equity. It's all of the stuff that we don't want to see in there. But we've allowed the system to have this Trojan horse that really takes on hours of our students' time and basically teaches something that is not measurable, they're not accountable for, and is ever-evolving, and, and so we can't even catch it. Mm-hmm. Look, why can't we have a system where the parent knows in advance what their child is going to learn for the rest of the month? And at the end of the month, we receive some sort of checklist of what has actually been taught. And if I move my child from one school to another, or if I ha- if the teacher switches, the teacher knows what is expected of a child to learn in kindergarten, second grade, fourth grade, sixth grade, right. et cetera. There are some people that will say, if you have a, I'm just going to call it centralized curriculum, then that the government is implementing in all schools across, you know, every single community in the country, uh, that 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 that's going to give a one-sided power, and you're going to, I want to say, indoctrinate kids right. with like a one-sided perspective. What is your response to that? I understand people being afraid of some authoritarianism in in if there is 
you know, a cabal that writes curriculum. I mean, we see that already with Mm -hmm. the teachers' unions. And so it's not that we don't have that, only now they get to do that in the dark without, well, with us being in the dark, without knowing what's Mm going to happen. Uh, And there's, of course, a risk to every system. But in my opinion, if there is transparency in the curriculum that is written, and we are able to hold the people who write it accountable. There would be elected officials that hopefully without cheating, we can actually uh, vote for them. Right. Um, but, you know, at the very least, if we have some transparency, then we can hold those elected officials accountable for a curriculum that is written and we would be aware of what is happening. There isn't going to be a system that deals with millions of people that is going to be absolutely perfect. There's always going to be room for some sort of criticism. But if you look at the 1950s, when there was a knowledge-based education system, where kids did go and memorize the Pledge of Allegiance mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the great poetry. The states. Uh, right, the states, capitals, the presidents. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and all of that body of knowledge was actually provided to these children. I don't think that the, the case was that there was great authoritarianism in education. I think what we saw in the 1950s is that people actually just learned more and knew more. And I think that if you learn more and you know more, then you're less likely to have this groupthink. And, you know, the other issue that we're dealing with when there isn't a cultural literacy is the lack of nationalism that it's creating, right? We don't have things in common in, anymore with, with our next door neighbor. And, and we're having a hard time having conversations with people because while we do speak English and we speak the same language, we don't have the same cultural literacy. We don't speak the same nationalism, right? right. And so we don't feel connected. How do you feel connected with someone when you have something in common? When you have a shared history. Correct. You have a shared history. You have some sort of shared commonality beyond just the spoken word. And that used to be what the schools did for us in America. They used to be a a great vehicle for the melting pot versus Mm -hmm. what right now is celebrated is some fruit salad. (laughs) <laughs> where it's like, okay, we're all here, but you know, you can be a banana and I can be an apple and we can just never interact, but both live in America. No wonder we can't really get along. And I think that by having cultural literacy, by actually teaching a knowledge base that, you know, really is celebrating a, a basic patriotism will actually bring all of us closer and make us like one another a little more, which seems to be the opposite direction of where America is headed and it is quite a dangerous direction. It is a dangerous direction. And that is one thing I want, because I have read this book. You did suggest this to me and it really did open my eyes and mind to something that I was really clueless about, about how many decades this really has been dismantling our education system. And this this first chapter right here, when our schools abandoned commonality, we became a nation at risk. There are this is not that's not hyperbole. I don't I don't think that's hyperbole at all. Because there are a lot of people who say that what's happening in the education system now with taking away this knowledge base really is a hijacking of our country. How do we course correct this? So I, I think what has happened in America's education system is dangerous on so many levels. Start with the fact that there is no knowledge base and effectively it is making America dumber. And I'm just going to say it. We it are is. becoming dumber. You hire the younger people you hire, compare them today with what they were years ago. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, the fact that there is no basic expectation that they can spell correctly, write correctly, um, 
or really even do math, is one example of many other examples of they simply just don't know stuff. And they don't know stuff because we have not sent them to a school that expects them to know stuff. You compare it to schools that are knowledge-based, the, the kids who come out of there have more knowledge. And so that is danger number one. Yeah. Danger number two is that our kids are not getting along with other Americans. They don't feel patriotic. Uh, this word nationalism is supposedly a pejorative, which it really shouldn't be. It should be a completely normal thing that a child that grows up in America loves and respects their country. Does it mean that America is perfect? No, there is no. no country that is perfect. Is my mom perfect? She's not perfect. I love my mom. You know what I mean? No <laughs> right. one is perfect. And your exactly. cousin's not perfect. Right? And so, but there is this, you know, there is this underlying disgusting agenda. And I don't know if it's uh, uh, an agenda that has been, you know, manufactured and planned to attack our, our country. Uh, it could be. Uh, but even if it wasn't manufactured and planned, it, it has snowballed into this giant thing because our kids are not learning to love America. They're not learning civics. They're not learning the comparative history to see how we got here. Right. Uh, and so there, the element of be, becoming dumber than not loving your country and having this, you know, uh, lack of patriotism and lack of understanding of who we are is a very, very dangerous thing. And then on top of that is this class warfare that is created now mm -hmm. through much of what I call that Trojan horse, both SEL and language arts, so much of that curriculum is about critical race theory and equity, which is really creating that, I joke, fruit salad. But this is a very, very dangerous fruit salad mm -hmm. because if we don't feel connected, we are not going to fight together for our country. And the melting pot was this brilliant idea that basically said to every single American, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter where your family comes from. Mm -hmm. Here is this ladder. Learn the ladder. Participate in our nation, and you become an American. Now we're teaching kids all that matters is what you look like. Right. All that matters is what your last name is. It doesn't matter what the ladder is. You don't even have a ladder. All you need to focus on <laughs> is, you know, how we are so different and how it will be virtually impossible for us to work together because that's what it feels like when you feel disconnected from that person sitting next to you. And I think that trifecta is weakening America in a way that is more dangerous than any external factors. Uh, it is no surprise to me that Mike Pompeo, uh, former Secretary of, of, of State, said that the teachers' unions are the most dangerous thing to the United States. Mm -hmm. And that is because it, it is a direct attack on our children. And as long as our children remain politicized and the, there is this Trojan horse that is eating our education from within, we are going to continue to go downhill. Mm -hmm. For parents whose kids are in the system that does not have any accountability in teaching the foundational basics, grade level to grade level, essentially that's, I mean, what is there to do? Yeah. It's like, how do we not feel how do we dare? So I yeah. actually, so if you really think about it, it is actually not that difficult to solve the problem. I don't know that we can solve it on a macro level because of all the bureaucracies and the institutionalized systems that have become, you know, progressive education, right. not to mention their their attachment to, you know, the ideological left-wing uh, um, agenda. But on a personal level as parents, it's actually not that hard to provide your child with cultural literacy. The sad thing is that most of the people that are probably listening to this interview 
are the type of people that could help their kids, mm -hmm. but most people are not gonna listen to this interview and most people will not know how to do it. But if you are the type of person that can read, can buy a few books, mm -hmm. you can do it on the weekends. You can inoculate your child on the weekends. You can actually figure out what it, what are the basics to understand America or to understand the cultural literacy that we need to understand Western civilization or even financial literacy, right? You can actually do that as a parent. We have been told by government schools that our job as parents is to basically bathe our kids, make them lunch, and, pick, and send them to school and then pick them up at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And that the government schools or even the private schools, their job is to teach our children everything, including that emotional element of values. I don't believe in that. I believe that if you want to send your kid to a school, that's fine. But you can't forfeit your responsibility and just say, okay, you know, let me just make them a sandwich for the mm -hmm. day. That is not your role as a parent. It's not your only role as a parent. Your role as a parent is to actually provide them with knowledge as well. Right. And so I know it seems so overwhelming. What are you going to become your kid's teacher? It seems really overwhelming, but it's actually not that hard. You can have, you can make the right choices of the type of books that you want your kids to read. You can ha have them watch PragerU Kids. We right. can talk about how PragerU Kids is that ladder. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really guarantee you that if your child, starting at kindergarten, if your child watches PragerU Kids every single week, they will climb up that ladder. They will receive that cultural literacy that we're looking to provide to children, which our schools are not providing. So there are ways to do it. There is a lot of information, but it's really not that much. And over 10 years, you can really teach a child a lot. And so a part of it is confidence, mm -hmm. taking the first steps up that hill so it doesn't feel that overwhelming. And, you know, you can order, there. there's a lot of great curriculum. There's classical conversations. There's classical curriculum that you could use as a supplementary curriculum at home. You don't have to necessarily send your child to a classical mm -hmm. school, though I think it's great if, if, if you have access to those. And I also recognize that a lot of parents cannot homeschool their kids. If they can homeschool their kids, that's great. But if they can't, then at the very least, you can inoculate them and provide them with what I call that ladder of, of teaching them some of those basics. Well, the interesting thing for me is that, you know, I was very, very clueless about how our system has become so dysfunctional. And the scariest part is really understanding how much education was lacking within myself. But now that I, as a parent, have seen this, I can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit because you did talk about standards and how we definitely need to have standards from grade level to grade level. Some people take the approach that standards are useless. Your response? I think that there's no area in our life where we accept the idea that standards are useless, except when it comes to our children. Hmm. Name a person who runs a business that doesn't have a certain standard for the people that work with them. I mean, having That's no true. standards is just so unfair. Why not hold teachers accountable? Mm -hmm. Why not hold parents accountable? Why not hold bureaucrats accountable? And you know what? Let's hold our children accountable because they can achieve. But if we don't hold them accountable, we're telling them that we don't believe in them. And so to not have standards, uh, I, I think, is what has got us to this place. And, and I know there will be claims that there are some basic standards, which, by the way, are continuing to drop every single year in the name of equity and inclusion. And so Watch what is happening every time we lower the standards or we remove standards, either a Trojan horse comes in or our kids can't really accomplish very, very basic things. I mean, you look at Singapore, 
a country that is much smaller than ours, their reading and math abilities are so so superior to the United States. They don't have the same budget that we we invest uh, in our kids. And, and why is that? And so one of the reasons that is, is because they do have standards. Mm -hmm. They have a knowledge-based curriculum with specific standards. Everybody that is part of the system and really raising a child it takes a village, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's it's the teachers, it's the parents, it's the bureaucrat, it's the child themselves or herself. All of those folks are involved in in the raising of a child and having them climb up the ladder. When you don't have them climb up a ladder, if you don't know what the ladder is, I don't know what you're going to climb up. Mm -hmm. And so, no, I think not having standards for any human being is incredibly unfair. It is. The shift in curriculum did not happen overnight. It's taken decades. How many decades do you think it's going to take to undo it? <laughs> well, I, you know what I would say? I, I think we're in the middle of an educational revolution because it has gone so bad for all kinds of different reasons. And maybe uh, the lockdown, uh, I don't call it the pandemic, I call it the lockdowns, lockdown, but maybe right. the lockdowns uh, have provided us some sort of silver lining uh, that we can see. And that I feel like I have been advocating for a radical transformation in America's education system for many, many years about 20, if I have to age myself. <laughs> uh, and, you know, even 11 years ago when we started PragerU, that was very much part of, you know, our agenda here is to really push for for real change and, and real education with concrete knowledge and, and expectations of, of both educators and students. And it was difficult for me to get people to really understand what is happening. And then you fast forward to what has happened over the last two or three years. I think parents have been waking up in a way that I have never seen them awake. And I think that that kind of educational revolution can only happen if the masses wake up and start making demands. And I think we're getting there because I am starting to see parents getting more involved. And I think they wanna do good. They wanna change. They just don't know what is happening. Mm -hmm. They don't know what has led us to this and they don't know what to even expect. And so part of it is to understand how we got here. Again, I really recommend this book, How to Educate a Citizen. Mm -hmm. It gives a really good survey of how we got here, starting with John Dewey and his colleague at uh, Teachers College. At um, His name is um, Howard Kilpatrick. Mm -hmm. He was the one who really believed in this natural education, romanticizing this idea that the nature knows best. Uh, and so it really started you know, many years ago, even before the 50s. But in the 50s, they rejected a lot of that philosophy and then caught up later on in the 60s and 70s and you know, a, really skyrocketed with, with social-emotional learning and, and the other new kind of curricula that has been brought into the schools. So you know, I think the bottom line is to understand what has happened. Uh, the next part for parents is to start asking real questions at the school. I mean, I think parents do deserve to know what their kids are learning, what the curriculum is going to look like, and demand something that is more than brush strokes. Like, you know, sending your kid there for many, many hours, oftentimes you're sending them to a private school where you're paying. You should know what they're learning. You should be involved. And, and not just because you have the right to do it, but you also have the obligation to help support what is happening in the school, right? Mm -hmm. If you're sending your kids to a wonderful school that is teaching them wonderful things, why not continue that conversation at home and actually embed it into your dinner discussions mm -hmm. or, or your weekend discussions when you're driving somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. why, why create this 
complete split between what is happening in the classroom and what is happening at home. Isn't that the best way to really create scaffolding for learning? Absolutely. Right? And so I think that's, that's a great way to get involved. And if you're not seeing what you're hoping to see in your kid's school, then take it upon yourself, you know, Friday or Saturday morning or Sunday morning to spend a few hours with your child and give them that ladder because it is that ladder. It's the kids who do know what the ladder is and the kids who know how to climb the ladder that will actually end up making it further in life. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, you've taught us that here. I've learned that from you in just a couple years. <laughs> Truthfully. There you go. Two years. Truthfully. You don't need 12 years of education. No, Two years I, I got a lot more to go, but I have learned that from you. And I think all of us, uh, you know, collectively speaking, have really learned that meritocracy matters and results matter. And it needs to return to our education system and our schools or else we have a bigger problem than we realize for the future of this country. Thank you so much for letting, thank you, thank you so much for letting us listen to your wisdom for a change. <laughs> well, thank you, you for listening. <laughs> it's, nice, it's nice to actually have an audience that finally gets it. You mm-hmm. know, it's been a long time where I felt like, you know, I had a few conversations with a few educators and oftentimes I felt really alone in this. Uh, by the way, just a shout out to anybody that works with Edie Hirsch. Mm-hmm. I've been trying, it's on my bucket list to try to meet any any of the folks that are part of their foundation. And we so have to make if it they're happen. listening, if you're <laughs> listening right now, please email me. Uh, we'd love to work with you guys. Um, maybe we can have Edie Hirsch on the program or, or someone from there. But thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to, you know, fix this system that we care so much about. We care, we care about our kids. we got to fix it. Yeah, we do. Thank you for teaching us. 